Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Most of us think that our life experiences, and especially our extreme life experiences, are unique to us and no one could understand. And of course, the vast majority of our experiences are shared. Mm. Every human being, I mean, we all, we all have a capacity for so much, but I mean, even the wealthiest and seemingly most privileged of us are suffering. Yeah. Constantly suffering, right? Even the president of the United States must stand naked, as Dylan said, right? That's right. <laughs> so, Dylan said that? Yeah. You would know that, of course. <laughs> it's a great line. But yeah, that I think that's the soul of empathy, to understand that other people aren't your enemy and there aren't some people somewhere who are living in a state of complete grace where they never have any struggles. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. Today's guest is musician and podcaster John Roderick. John played in the band Harvey Danger and went on to indie rock success with The Long Winters. He has hosted several podcasts, including Roderick on the Line with Merlin Mann, Omnibus with Ken Jennings, and Friendly Fire with Adam Pronica and Benjamin Harrison. But his most unenviable accomplishment was becoming Twitter's main character from January 3rd through January 5th of 2021. If you heard the story back then, you almost certainly heard a distorted or incomplete version. We're going to crack open that can of beans to get to the real story and talk about moving through life without a plan, about surviving cancellation, losing friends, and what we can learn from a story like this about broader cultural trends. But like any good labyrinth, John's story has a long and winding beginning. I'm a local here, Seattleite. I moved to Seattle right before the grunge explosion. I had no real intention of being a musician. I was much more inclined to be a writer. But watching the grunge thing happen all around me, and I happened into a job at a club, mm-hmm. being there and watching those bands and seeing all those bands explode into the world, I had the confidence of a, of a 21-year-old uh-huh. And felt like, these bands are terrible. <laughs> I could do this. And I knew a little rudimentary guitar. But I started to write songs, and my early songs were just awful. But I, I had the artistic knowledge enough to know that I was terrible, right? That was 
David Sedaris, I think, that said that the first thing we develop is our taste mm. before our talent. Mm. And so I knew I was awful. I think in my 20s, the goal was to work as little as you could at a job and spend the, the most amount of time sitting in cafes talking about the shows you were going to do one day with your friends, right? It's sitting and talking about the plays you were going to write. And, but it was really a cafe culture. And that was what we did. We had play readings in our funky loft apartment. You know, it was, a, it was the 90s and uh, Seattle was cheap to live. And it felt like uh, nobody had any ambition because there wasn't really any money here. Mm. Mm. There wasn't all this software money. And, you know, my apartment was $350 a month. And, the, and we had a full garage practice space for $300 a month. Wow. And I worked 20 hours a week and I made $900 a month. And that was mo way more money than I needed. Right. Uh, you know, I was making, what, $12,000 a year. And then all through the band years, I didn't know what, I didn't know enough to have ambition. Like, I didn't know what the ceiling was. Hmm. I knew that shooting to be as big as Pearl Jam was not realistic. The decisions I made were, here, here you are at a, at a crossroads. What do you do? Keep doing this? I'm making $15,000 a year. Or should I get a job? <laughs> Which a lot of my peers did arrive at a place where they were like, I'm, Never going to get anywhere, so. And my back hurts. <laughs> yeah, right. And I just want to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And I never felt like that I wasn't grown up, but I also, I didn't have a ton of, of ideas of what grown up looked like. Doesn't sound like you had parents who were like, when are you going to be a, a lawyer? <laughs> you know, my parents were, were surprisingly supportive, given that when I was in high school, they were really, really, you know, if you don't follow this path, you're going to... What was their path? Well, they were both professional people that... My dad was a generation older, so he was... Uh, he fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't imagine why you wouldn't go to law school. It seemed like such a no-brainer. Of course, you go to law school, and you can do whatever you wanted. And I would say, well, did you do whatever you wanted? And he said, no, I became a lawyer. <laughs> and I was like, did you enjoy being a lawyer? No, no, not at all. But... And I'm like, so why would I? <laughs> so in high school, it was really unclear how to teach me. Nobody knew why I wasn't thriving. I graduated last in my class. Actual last, like yeah. last place. Like you could know that? Yeah, because the principal called me in and put the computer printout, you know, folding paper with perforations. And he said, I want you to find your name on this list of graduating seniors. And I started it number one. And I was like, well, I'm not number one. And he was like, yeah, let me help you. And flipped to the last page. Wow. And there were a dozen kids who had higher GPAs than I did, but who didn't graduate. I did not thrive as a, as a young person. And my parents were very worried. You know, I left high school and became a drinker and a drug taker and a traveler. I traveled a lot, but sort of vagabondy. I was living a very dissolute. I was an alcoholic. And so when I was 26, I realized that I had hit a, an end. And, of course, that was right in the middle of the druggiest rock period here in Seattle. There were a lot of people on slow drugs and there were a lot of people on fast drugs, kind of right in the, right in the middle. Doing some, doing both. And a lot doing both. 
But I struggled and struggled, and, and it was only in my very late 20s that I had a band that was somewhat successful in Seattle. And so, you know, I never played a, a music show where I was high or drunk. I quit all of that before I was able to put a band together. Hmm. So, and I think leaving drugs and alcohol behind was the first thing that my parents, that was their first rejoice. Maybe he's going to do something with himself. Or at least he's going to make it. Yeah. yeah. Right. We're not going to get a call one day that he's dead in a ditch. Exactly. Which I think they expected to get and waited for. Jeez. Wow. Because my mom at uh, my 30th birthday said, she said, I've never told you this, but at 16, I resigned myself that you were not going to survive. And so I was, I had to be grateful for our time together when you were young. I mean, it broke my heart when she said it, but then I was a parent 10 years later and realized how really bad that must have been for her. Yeah. And then I was asked to join Harvey Danger, who at the time had a gold record and was traveling the country. And I was just a sideman in that band. But then it's not like I parlayed it, but just tumbling through life, uh, put out my first of my own albums when I was 32 or almost 33. Okay. And my band was called The Long Winters. And then that was, at least from an indie rock standpoint, a successful band. And we toured the country and toured Europe. That was my life until I was in my early 40s, living in a van and doing the whole independent rock thing. And we were just successful enough that we could do multiple European tours and made a living. And lucky enough, that was at a time when music supervisors would put indie rock songs in television shows and TV commercials. Ah. Very good. And it was before they figured out they could just have young kids do it on their laptops and pay them $500. Yeah. They were like, oh, well, we pay the Rolling Stones a million dollars. <laughs> so these kids from Seattle, I mean, what if we offered them $80,000? <laughs> and we were like, the record cost $5,000 to make the whole album. And and this is for what? Like a Ford commercial? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, right. I mean, we did, we were on Gilmore Girls and 90210, but also... Fiat commercials and this type of thing. Who who could have guessed that putting a song on the OC hmm. would be enough to give me a down payment on a house? Right. Yeah. So a lot of the business of indie rock didn't exist when I started, and it doesn't exist now. It was just a brief period. So on that journey, did you know where you were going? Like, how often do you feel like you had a direction and you were going the direction you wanted to go? So. Yeah, by the time I was 40, I did not at any point have a plan along the way. And from 40 till now, at age 54, I have still never had a plan. <laughs> like, at any point. Okay, well, no plan. Sounds like you're pretty comfortable with not knowing where you're going. But when have you felt the most lost? Well, that whole time I never felt lost. Um, because without a plan, you have no, you weren't trying to go anywhere. So how could you be lost? Sure. So the time I felt most lost has been in the last two years. Interesting. Since I was 40, I became a real online person and a social media person. And I really enjoyed that world. It was a, a pivot from rock. Rock and roll and I had always been a little bit of an imperfect fit. You know, and I was an early Twitter person and an, an early podcaster. 
And so developed this next career where I would uh, appear at comedy festivals. I would do cruises with comedians. And I, because I could play a guitar, I was a little bit of a double threat. I guess I could dance, so triple threat. <laughs> so I could be on your show, play a song, and then sit and banter, which is sort of that, that culture. And I built a new life there. Friends around the world and frequent collaborators who became close personal friends, and then they all knew each other too. Mm. And my professional life took me to New York and L.A. five or six times a year each. I had always shows to do and exciting sort of mid-tier hotels to stay in. <laughs> <laughs> and none of it produced great wealth. It was really at the same level that my band had been. Mm. Yeah. Medium amount of both fame and money. Enough that in certain rooms, I was really famous. But if I went to the next room in the hotel, no one would know me for madam. Right. Yeah. Or any of the most famous people in my scene, even. And so maybe for the first time, I did start to wish I had a plan. Because hmm. everybody there was always working on a script or, you know, auditioning for a show, writing a book. I mean, they were all grownups. Hmm professional show business people. And I was still just kind of skateboarding through life, not really making a magnum opus. And in your 40s, it seemed like a lot of the people I was working with, like that was their most productive time. And then it was the three days right before the January 6th insurrection. And I got sideways with the internet. I was one of the people that for three days became the main character of Twitter. In a bad way. On January 2nd, everybody in the world, I think, was just bored out of their minds. January 6th hadn't happened. We were a year into the pandemic, and all the very online people were very online at this point. Two days after New Year, and I tweeted a thread about my daughter. You know, we'd sitting around doing a jigsaw puzzle. We'd been homeschooling for a year. And she came to me and said, I'm hungry. And it was noon, and we'd just had a breakfast at 10 in the morning. And I said, well, you know, make a can of soup. She said, there's no soup, but can I have these baked beans? And I was like, sure, go for it. You know, I'm working on a puzzle. And she comes in with the can, and it doesn't have a pull tab, which all of her soup cans do. She's like, it's broken. Yeah, <laughs> Fix it, Dad. It's like the, it's like the, the, uh, the apes in 2001, and she's looking at an obelisk, just like, what does this do? And I said, go get a can opener and open. And she brought the can opener and had no idea how it worked. To be fair, those do look like crazy torture contraptions. They like. are. And as soon as I looked at it through her eyes, I realized, oh, this is a mystery machine. Yeah. Hmm. And there's nothing logical about the way it fits on a can. Right. And nothing about this is self-explanatory. Well, she goes to Montessori school, and their whole philosophy is let them work out their problems. Not knowing the answer is not a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we'd spent the year prior homeschooling every day doing a lot of this stuff. How do we fix the garage door opener? Why is this thing not working, and what do we do? to get it working. 
I've been doing a ton of research about stuff like this. And one of the things that I've read is like, um, they call it strewing, where you just leave an object in reach of the kid and let just let them play with it. Like there's no wrong way to interact with an object and eventually see if they discover the use of the object. So I imagine that this is a very similar philosophy. Yeah. And she was eight. So she and I spent then the next several hours with her trying to get this crazy little claw Mm -hmm. onto this can. And I said, you know, the can and the claw are made together. The can befits the claw. Like, these are not two separate worlds that are being glommed. This is a marriage. Well, it was just astonishing because everything she tried was the natural thing to try. Hmm. We'll put it on like this. We'll put it on like that. We'll screw it this way, screw it that way. And each time I would say, well, now what does this do? What is this part? Don't just blindly turn it. Like, what are these? Anyway, I wrote it as a Twitter thread and posted it. And of course, in the Twitter thread, I made a category error of saying at one point she wanted to abandon it. And I said, well, we're not going to have anything else to eat until we unlock this puzzle. Of course, not meaning you don't eat until you solve my... my, You're going to die. My Gordian (laughs) knot. But just like, you know, we're not going to abandon this and go eat cookies. This is our puzzle. And of course, she went back to it many times. She would throw it down and go stomp off and read a book for a while. And then, you know, I'd watch her inch back into the room and... (laughs) looking at it and thinking about it. (laughs) And when she finally opened the can, it was a great moment. You know, she'd been right so close to it Mm -hmm. for uh, 40 minutes. And when she finally clamped it and you heard the can go, Mm. and she knew. And then she opened the can. Glory of glories. It was just (laughs) like, you know, like what a triumph. Yeah. Yeah. And she immediately emptied the beans out and Turn the can over and open the, the other bottom. side of it. That's yeah. great. <laughs> and she keeps that can on a shelf in her room. Hmm. As just like this, you know, this can. I won the can. Yeah, this can she saw. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I posted this thread. And, you know, the first several hours, it was just my usual, I had about 40,000 Twitter followers. Most of them know me from music or listen to my podcasts which have about 40,000 listeners. I had about 40,000 records sold of each of my records. I ran for Seattle City Council and got about, you know, somewhere in that same (laughs) order of votes. It's just a cap on my popularity. Yeah. (laughs) But after, you know, toward the end of the day, I started to get tweets that were like, this isn't funny. How dare you? And the tweets up to then had been like, ha ha, once again, you know, John. Because it's within it's- your little network of people who sort of know how to read right. your behavior and your tone and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Right. People that, that saw it as funny, saw it as typical, and knew it in the context of my relationship with my kid, which I talk about on my podcast and had since she was born. And the first group of people that started to come out of nowhere and say, like, this is abusive. Mm. I went and read their Twitter bios, 
And they were all a group of mommy bloggers from Kentucky. Hmm. And someone clearly had, from my network, had seen the, the thing and liked it and retweeted it, but had followers in this world. And it started then to go out into this world where my, my first reaction was a bunch of mommy bloggers in Kentucky. Like that's exactly the group of people that I'm kind of trying to antagonize. Yeah. Yeah. But also don't fuck with the mommy bloggers in Kentucky. (laughs) And I didn't realize that. But I thought they were probably, you know, conservative middle of America parenting culture that maybe was connected to Pizzagate. You know, there's all this craziness around children. Mm-hmm. Totally. But then it started to go wider. And the response was that this was abu- abuse. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people responded like, well, my kid would just look it up on YouTube. Ah, like making fun of your daughter. Well, yeah. And like, what kind of parent are you that your kid doesn't know how to look up things on YouTube to solve problems. And it, and this came at me a lot. Like this was a thing that made me and my kid ridiculous hmm. that we didn't know how to solve problems that their that their online kids did. <laughs> Except that that's the original way of solving problems, but sure, continue. <laughs> but a lot of this like, well, why don't you help her? Why don't you sh- help her? Totally and completely missing the point of exploratory puzzle solving. But, you know, I wasn't really super explicit about that in my thread because, again, I'm broadcasting to what I assume is my audience who knows that I'm doing this all the time. Um, And I do it with myself, right? I put myself always in situations where it's like, I don't know how to get out of this. Let's see what happens. So a lot of that anger was partly that I didn't understand where mommy bloggers were coming from. Partly it had never occurred to me that somebody would say, if you don't solve my Gordian knot, you don't get any food. Yeah. That seemed like a, like some weird Victorian Pink Floyd lyric. Yeah. And partly it was that in my thread, I hadn't laid out all the ground rules for an audience I, that didn't know me. Right. Well, the next day, it had exploded and gone everywhere. It had become a, a whole topic on Black Twitter which had a very different take on it. Interesting. Right? Because if you follow Black Twitter at all, there's a whole universe over there of people like, well, my grandmother would have put me in a, in a bucket of cold water if I looked at her sideways. Mm. The parent or the grandparent is a disciplinary figure and wouldn't put up with baloney. Hmm. And so in, in comes my thread, and there's, a, there's all this sort of, dispute about it, right? Like, well, this is just good parenting. Well, no, he's, you know, more contemporary thinkers are saying, well, this is unacceptable. So it sparked this debate everywhere. Mm. People arguing with each other. Is this what your dad would have done? That's what makes it catch fire, right? It's got to be contentious. And so when you ask that question, is this what your dad would have done? The answer is, is somewhat dependent on how you feel about your own dad. Mm. This is what my dad would have done, and I loved my dad, and that's why I'm such a good skier. Mm-hmm. Or this is what my dad would have done, and he was abusive and, and ruined me for life. But also, the this in that sentence is often misinterpreted when people are even asking the question, right? Right. On the one hand, this, asking me to solve this puzzle, 
is why I'm a computer scientist now, or this refusing to help me and making food the object is what my abusive dad would do. Right. So on the one hand, for three days, hundreds of thousands of people were tweeting about it. For the first time in history, all four top trending topics on Twitter were related to this. Whoa. And someone, some wag, coined the term bean dad, and hashtag bean dad then became the kind of governing idea. I was bean dad, and some people thought it was ridiculous. Some people thought it was pathetic. A lot of, like, really online people thought I was just some dope who was trying to be funny and had failed. Mm. But there were a lot of people that felt like I was abusive. Well, into the middle of this, someone tweets a screenshot of multiple tweets that I had sent over the years from 2011 to 2015 Mm -hmm. that said things like, well, you know, one thing you have to know as a musician is the Jews control the media. So you need to be aware that every song has to refer to a dreidel or whatever. And there was a screenshot of a dozen tweets that I'd sent out of the 40,000 tweets that I'd sent that had language that was racist, sexist, the, the rainbow of, of unacceptable tweets. Yeah. Most of them, taken in context, were satirical. The Jews that control the media tweet was usually tweeted at a Jewish friend who worked in show business. And as somebody who's been in show business my whole life, and I have a lot of Jewish friends, that kind of banter, if we're sitting at a bar, is hilarious. And on Twitter, it used to feel like we were all sitting at a bar. Mm. You know all your friends, and then there, there's this large audience of people watching. This was not a time when everybody needed to reply to everything. I think you probably all remember that Ashton Kutcher and CNN were in a race to see who was the first person to get a million followers on Twitter. Wow, I did not. <laughs> and, and for two days, they were neck and neck, you know, 700,000, 800,000. And I think Ashton Kutcher was, a, was the first to reach a million before CNN. And it was then that all the famous people were like, wow, I should get on there. But also, all the newspapers were collapsing at that very moment. All the television stations were firing reporters. And so there was this glut of news people and opinion writers who lost their venue and all moved to Twitter at the same moment. Mm. So it went from being a place where nerds were making jokes that other people would think were anti-Semitic to a place where all the reporters were there. The whole culture migrated there from 2012 to 2015. And Trump just made it. Yeah, supercharged it. Well, I found out later that the person that had screenshotted this stuff had actually done it five years prior when I was running for city council. He'd done it because five years before that, I wrote an article for the Seattle Weekly called Punk Rock is Bullshit. And it was meant to be funny, saying, here's all the reasons that punk, which we all think of as a church and a temple, is actually a bullshit universe. 
What a punk thing to do. <laughs> I can't, couldn't agree more. The punkest thing of all. Well, the Seattle Weekly made it their cover story. And it was the first thing I ever did that really went viral. And again, in a very negative way. Hmm. Because every 45-year-old who had spent their youth at a, a socialist warehouse that was like a punk youth center wanted to tell me that punk was not bullshit, that it had saved their life. Anyway, when I was running for city council here, five years later, this person did keyword searches on all of my bad tweets and had screenshotted them in case I won the primary. And if I'd gone into the general election, he was going to send this out into the world and it would have derailed my campaign. Mm -hmm. Wait, how does this relate to the punk story? He, it was revenge. He was so mad. That you called punk bullshit? I had slandered punk rock. <laughs> that he believed that, well, a lot of the, that See, that's reaction. that's not very punk of him. <laughs> a lot of that reaction to it was like, well, I must have been sincere, as though I was a real ultra-right conservative commentator. Because they still felt in their hearts that the people that were against punk were like Tipper Gore. And I was like, I've eaten more chicken off of a fender of a van <laughs> on the side of the road than you've had hot dinners, and you're telling me that I'm like the enemy of punk, you know? Also, very likely for the Seattle Weekly to publish as a front page story a yeah. conservative takedown of punk right. rock. And, then, you know, <laughs> and to me, like the tone of it couldn't have been more satirical. But that's the thing about satire. What makes it funny is that it's going to catch a certain number of people that think it's sincere. Oh, it's the whole premise of The Onion, right? If there, if there was nobody who didn't think The Onion was real sometimes, yeah. it wouldn't succeed. <laughs> they, they have to make you do a double take. That's why it's good. That's exactly right, right? Well, this screenshot lands right in the center of being dead. Ugh. And so everybody that had decided... Accelerant on the fire. That's right that had decided that I was an abusive father, now had confirmation that I was also a racist. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinth's Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinth's. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. At that point, a lot of my show business friends who were actual friends, real people I vacationed with, people that I, I loved and that they loved me. We watched our kids grow up, they grew up together. The mob, which was doing everything in its power to, at that point, make sure that I never walked the earth again. The mob started to turn its attention to my friends. Oh, no. How can you support this guy? What are you going to, you know, 
you are clearly his friend. What are you going to do Aren't you going to disavow this? him? Yeah. And so for the next day, a lot of people hung with me. But one by one, they felt that they needed to denounce me in some way, to disavow me, to say, this guy was my friend, but I can't stand by these terrible tweets that I know are satire. But satire is no longer an excuse. Hmm. The argument being that the language has power and what your intention is doesn't matter. Mm. And so the next day, I watched my network collapse, which was, which I had allowed to become my whole creative life. And in a way, my life. Because yeah. I traveled everywhere. Like I said, my kids and their kids. This was where I lived, the internet. And as that happened, as I got one after another sort of notification from people like, hey, man, I'm really sorry this is happening, but I'm going to have to release a press release because people are threatening to cancel my show. Wow. They're threatening to remove their support. Right. Guilt by association. And I would write back and say, this will be over in 24 hours. None of these things last. This can't possibly survive this three days. I, that, not knowing, not unless knowing. you knew that January 6th of the Sunday happened. I know. I actually did. <laughs> I was behind it. But let alone, I, you have to keep that snort in there. <laughs> let alone that there's something new on the, on the horizon. Yeah. Even if there hadn't been, it would have eventually gotten replaced with just the news. Yep. But in that moment, all these other people, and these are universally white dudes, in their 40s and 50s. None of my Jewish friends, none of my black friends, none of my gay friends abandoned me in any substantive way. All of my Jewish friends were like, lol, the Jews do control the media. Ha 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 ha, finger guns. <laughs> and I'm saying that to your audience. Uh, hopefully by now they know <laughs> that I don't, that I'm not an anti-Semite. And yeah, my, at that point, my argument to the larger world was, Look, if I was a racist and an anti-Semite, why would I be trying to convince you I wasn't? We're living in a world where they're super proud to be those things. Mm. I'm here begging you to understand that, but using the logic that in your intent doesn't matter, or the words have symbolic power in the world. They have an impact whether you intended that impact or not. And this is antithetical to the way that I was raised in comedy, right? It's precisely the intent that gives those words you're reappropriating actual power. That's the power of reappropriating words. Well, so at the end of that day, there was a tweet from a non-binary person that I had worked with in the context of one of these big shows a decade prior, in 2011. We'd been on the same bill. And this was on a bill where everybody else was a 40-year-old white comedian. And this person was at the time, at the time she was a girl and young, 20 years old, and a musician who wrote songs about, actually her older sister wrote songs about robots and uh, dinosaurs and Star Wars. And she played the cello. Well, so they tweeted that at this event, I had made a comment about their dress that made them uncomfortable. And that tweet 
was sufficient to bring the not the the entire weight of me too but some of the weight of the trans me too overlay and just the general sort of progressive very online me too adjacent energy then really came down and my friends are extremely sensitive to that particular voice well because it's a very loud voice and it's very hard to escape precisely that accusation because you cannot disprove it not only can you not disprove it but to argue it is to immediately not be an ally but to admit it is also not to be an ally the accusation is the final word and for me thinking back i mean in 30 years of being in show business, no one had the one thing no one had ever said about me. I'm, I'm an asshole, I guarantee you. But the one thing no one had ever said about me is that I had made an untoward advance or an unwelcome comment or a like I'm the hover hand guy in fan photographs, right? Now, my show business friends were now having really loud voices directed at them. Look, your friend who's a child abuser. And also, as we discovered yesterday, a racist is now also accused of assault. People were using the word assault? They still do. And as a result of that accusation of assault, and it was never, there was never any detail added to it other than that I had said something that made this person uncomfortable. That, for some, was the final straw. And I started to lose gigs that I'd had for decades, or a decade at least. A cruise that I was on every year said that they held a tribunal secret, and it was determined that I had violated their code of conduct in 2011. Without giving you any opportunity to speak to them sort of thing. Or to even know what the testimony was or what evidence they had. And I was given a permanent ban. And from there... There was, you know, a kind of domino effect of either permanent bans or soft bans. And this is all happening like January 5th? Yeah. By the end of that day, it appeared that I had lost my career. I lost a podcast. I had a podcast called Friendly Fire, where I and two millennial guys watched old war movies and talked about them. And I was the crusty old guy that knew the difference between a f4 and an f14 and i would say listen back in the old days people used to say used to use slurs against our enemies so in these movies if they say kraut for instance you can't really judge it by 2020 standards of what we think of as racist and those guys would go like what do you mean it is racist it's a racist movie and i'm like it's the longest day it's like one of the great war movies we have to watch you know i'm this guy and that was the appeal right that was my role in the show but uh the, but that show ended up canceled and that was kind of the show i was yeah i really loved doing and those guys were really close friends I haven't spoken to them since wow hmm. and that was before child protective services arrived at my house saying that there had been over a dozen complaints worldwide, accusations of child abuse, 
and they spent a day at my house interviewing my daughter, going through the cupboards to make sure there was enough food. Wow. Checking off a, a long list that they were obligated to do. And they were wonderful. In the end, it was a, it was a positive experience both to see them at work and to talk to them about their jobs and how, what a hard job that is. They said to my daughter, what's the worst thing about your dad? What's the thing about your dad that you like the least? And she said, well, he says that he'll come down and play Barbies with me. And when he does, he just plays Legos. <laughs> and he says he's building a house for the Barbies out of Legos, but I know he's really just playing Legos for himself. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay, we get, the, we get the picture. That's, you know, and they'd spent a, an hour or so developing a trust with her, so they felt like they were going to get an honest answer. Also, that's just like such a specific answer. <laughs> yeah, like you want to know the worst thing about my dad? Mm, let me tell you. And I, you, because it was the last thing that had happened, right? right. I mean, so, and I, then I, I wrote a, a, an apology, public apology, where I said I understood what everyone was upset about. And I did, you know, I had lived online and watched the rules of the discourse change over time, which is why I did not continue to say the Jews control the media past 2015. Right. And over time, you know, between 2010 and 2020, Generation X had to really learn new rules. Right. There were a lot of words that we used to say to each other that you couldn't say. There were a lot of takes or tactics that were no longer acceptable. And I knew it, I watched it, and I, it, I understood it. Mm -hmm. And then the ones where kind of people my age were like, really? You can't say master bedroom? We understood that you can't. Now, maybe we can with each other, but that's not a part of our Twitter. And so I, I understood that I had violated the terms and conditions that I had tacitly agreed to by staying on social media when these were clearly the, the new rules. Mm. And there were a lot of other rules besides, right? I think millennials traditionally or typically delete their Twitter history periodically. Hmm. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or they use these programs I weren't aware existed where they go through and scan for troubling, problematic words. And you can specifically delete those tweets. I was from the world where this was our archive. Mm. These were our tweets, man. You know, you have to keep these. This shows your progress through time. Your evolution, man. Yeah, because we're picture album people, you know? Like the first 30 years of my life, if somebody took a picture of you, even if it was out of focus and there was like spaghetti on your shirt, you kept it. Right. Hmm. That, and that horrible haircut that you had in the early yeah. 90s, like that's precious. Yeah, you keep these because <laughs> there's only, you only get 15 pictures a year. So I, I released this, this apology where I said, look, I, I should never have used that language. It's not mine to use. You know, apologizing within the language of, of the way that contemporary thinkers think. I didn't say, I acknowledge that you think that satire doesn't matter or, you know, intention doesn't. I didn't say that. I said, I acknowledge that 
these are the terms and conditions. And I violated them, and, and I'm sorry, legitimately sorry. Was there any positive response? Yes. A lot of people that were in my circle really needed that apology. Hmm. And partly it was that, that people that, that believed in me were able to show that apology to their friends who were mad and say, look, and I've heard from many, many people that the apology was really key in them being able to continue to be my friend in the face of their friends. Right. Mm. Because, the, you know, the mob took a, a lot of different tactics, right? There was the, the ones that just wanted to s- scream at me. I mean, my Instagram DMs were full of people just calling me every kind of name, threatening me, so mad really needed to just rip me a new one. But, you know, I got a lot of threats of violence. But what's more violent than sending Child Protective Services to your house? With the, I think those people legitimately thought that they, they would take my kid and that that would somehow benefit her to get away from this monster. And Child Protective Services, of course, was like, we don't take kids from people unless there's like cigarette burns on them because we don't have the resources to. Hmm. And so all of this is a huge waste of our time and money, but we have to do it. You know? Well, so that long history gets me to the beginning of my labyrinth. Yeah. Because at 52, where I had begun to see my future as knowable and predictable, and I never knew what the next cool thing was going to be, but there was always a next thing. And I was known everywhere and beloved enough that I was welcome everywhere. I was increasingly given, you know, asked to host events, asked to perform at birthday parties of famous people, you know, all this stuff that you kind of go, well, I guess this is a career. Sure. I'm not famous, but I'm being flown in first class because a famous person wants me to go to their golf tournament, hmm. you know, right? whatever job that is. And I love podcasting. And now in a, in a weekend, it was all over. Things got canceled. Things, people said they couldn't work with me anymore. Bop, 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 bop. People stopped texting. Yeah. And two people didn't. One of them was a co-host of a show I've had for a long time, Merlin Mann, who's a San Francisco tech thinker. When this all happened, Merlin called me on the phone and said, well, this is ridiculous. Are you ready to record on Monday? And I was like, I'm being savaged by the entire world. Don't you think we should take a week off? And he was like, if you want to. And I said, you're not worried? And he was like, no, this is dumb. And he was just ready to carry on. I have no idea. Well, I do know because it was dumb. And he just was unfaced. Why my other friends weren't? Merlin had just as much to lose. He just, he wasn't phased where so many others were. But the other was television's Ken Jennings, who at that moment was two days away from starting his stint as the first host of Jeopardy after Alex died. And he was online fighting people for me. This is dumb. John's great. This is an example of how, how the internet is terrible. 
It's idiotic. And the more pushback he got, the more he stood his ground. Until there was a segment of it that was more about Ken. The story went into Variety and Billboard and the L.A. Times and the London Times. It was in the New Yorker. It was on late-night television. Some of that was just people looking for material, but some of it was the new host of Jeopardy is supporting this racist, sexist friend. What's that about? Until he started getting cease and desist letters from Sony saying, you're about to be the figurehead of our most profitable television show. Shut up. Mm -hmm. And Ken said, eh, no. Wow. Because Ken has a real sense of right and wrong. And he's very confident in it. He's religious, you know, he's Mormon. And part of that is that he knows injustice. And so he said, well, I'm not going to side with the mob. And Merlin and Ken saved my life in the sense that, that at the end of that week, I would have been working at Guitar Center if I could get a job at Guitar Center. And so we carried on. And crazily, my 40,000 Twitter followers didn't go anywhere. And our 40,000 listeners to our show didn't go anywhere. The people that knew me actually just needed someone to stand up for me. And that was enough. So at 54, I still have these two podcasts. I still make a living. My daughter still lives with me happily. And we still practice Montessori principles. You know, I'd never connect whether or not she's going to eat. I mean, I assume you've talked to her about all this. Oh, she was there. How did she take it then? And, and how does she think about hashtag Bean Dad now? Well, about a month before Bean Dad, she had said something to me about Star Wars in passing. That if R2-D2 knew that Luke and Leia were the progeny of... Anakin, who became Darth Vader, why wouldn't R2 have said at some point in this whole, <laughs> here's this movie from Leia, why wouldn't he have said, oh, by the way, Darth Vader is your dad. And, and she's your sister. She's your sister. And here's R R2's there the whole time. That's true. So I put that into a tweet. My daughter uh, asked me this, and I don't really have an answer. Tweeted it. Well, it made its way to Mark Hamill, who said, huh, why didn't he? That doesn't make... And so That it, coy little droid, what the yeah. crap? <laughs> so that went viral, and it was the biggest tweet I'd ever tweeted, because it went into the nerdosphere through Mark Hamill in a way that I'd never seen. And she sat there, you know, kind of as a kid, always irritated that I'm on Twitter. What are you doing on there? Stop it. You know, put that down. Well, now I'm sitting there, it's like, well, this got 250,000 likes, and it's only been up for five hours. Like, you've just trumped me on Twitter with your one little R2 comment. And she was so delighted. And for about a month, she just rubbed my face in it. Like, how's my Twitter going? You know, like, <laughs> need any help? <laughs> Want any more cool viral tweets from me? And I was like, Thank thanks. You know, like, I got it covered. Thanks. So when this happened, she was very aware of what Twitter was and what it looked like. And she thought her dad getting his ass handed to him by the world for 
making her open that can of beans was the funniest thing that had ever happened. <laughs> and she was just delighted that I was getting my comeuppance because she was eight years old. And she loved that daddy had people mad at him because no one's ever mad at daddy around here because daddy never eats his spaghetti with a big slurp or whatever, you know, she's, she feels like every time somebody says, pick up your clothes, that like somebody's mad at her. Now everybody's mad at daddy. So since then, she wears being dad as a, as a badge of honor. Hmm. That's very punk of her. And she calls herself being daughter when it comes up. Wow. I'm being daughter, you know, but she's in sixth grade and she's about to go into a junior high where presumably those kids know how to Google things. And she's about to enter a world of mean girls where there will be people Googling one another and very online and looking to take one another out. And she's a very confident little girl. But I'm afraid for her because I don't know what online life is like for them. And maybe those kids are so, like, involved in snapchatting pictures of one another's braids to one another that there's no no one's ever like hey your dad's a racist but eventually yeah it's just that she knows all about it and thinks it's hilarious that i think maybe may save her you know from not knowing what to say when someone tries to shame her with it i think about it a lot i think about it every time i meet a grown-up her friends parents the administrators at her school, because it's the type of thing that if you have strong feelings about it, you're, you might not say. What was interesting about the Seattle music scene is that a lot of the, I used to be on the music commission here, part of the city government, and the new music commission, which is the people that, that took over after me. And it, it started as a business advocacy group. And gradually, over the course of a decade, morphed into a social justice organization. The new music commission issued a statement denouncing me as a former commissioner. But my music community, the middle-aged Seattle music community, to the last, just thought it was hilarious. Everywhere I went, people were like, ha, 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 hey, Bean Dad, what's up? But it changed our relationship, not a whit. Mm -hmm. Because it was just another example of some dumb thing that I did, which there were thousands of examples. Is it because there's such a discrepancy between the felt experience of all of this and people's perceptions of you that makes you feel lost at this moment? Because it's like you are okay in one world, but you're not okay in another world? And what world do you really live in? All the doors that I thought were open to me to go from age 54 to age 64, all the opportunities that I had not yet taken advantage of, but that represented my future, to write a book, to take one of my podcasts and turn it into something bigger, the war movie one in particular looked like it could be a television show to graduate to a level of public performance in the kind of stand-up cultural critic realm where I had a larger audience or just to expand my world by 10% a year. All of those doors closed. And 
I didn't have another, I'm not good at anything else, right? I can't pivot to science. I'm not going to start like pimping your rod. All I can do is talk and write. And it's precisely the talk and write business that feels the most obligated to keep me out because that's the side of the white liberal intelligentsia that is most torn by trying to serve both, you know, its own voice and serve this community that most closely identifies themselves as progressives, even as progressivism not only leaves them behind, but kind of rejects them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, a real crisis to some people. If you write for The New Yorker and you're 55 and you went to Brown, you look at that clock on your desk just going tick, 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 tick. How long before it's me? And I think all of my friends live in that world. Please don't come for me. And now here was a litmus test. Mm. If you are a progressive, are you going to stand by your white middle-aged bro? Or are you going to be on the side of justice? And that litmus test was really like, they had to pass it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much that they had to, that they abandoned me to save their careers. So much as it was that they had to abandon me in order to appear not to be hypocrites. Uh, Sophie's choice. Yeah. Which hypocrite are you? The one that abandons the friend that you know is innocent or the one that abandons contemporary principles that you say you've committed yourself to? Because your bro, who demographically is already part of the problem, right, has done all of the things that puts him in this demographic category of the worst. But in answer to the question posed by your show, it's been two years. Uh, for a while, the New York Times was trying to get me to write an op-ed about my experience. And I tried not to churn on it, but I was churning on it because I had to figure out how to write about it. I was never able to do it because the thing that people want to say is, well, I guess those people weren't really your friends. Mm. But they were. Yeah. They just were under tremendous pressure. The crazy thing about during that Bean Dad period, although it was written about in the New York Times and like I say, all around the world, the Manchester Guardian, not a single journalist reached out to me hmm. to hmm. interview me or talk to me. Hmm. They just assumed they had all the relevant context. That's right. They were writing about the phenomenon. Who I was and what was happening to me couldn't have been less relevant, which was what the New York Times was asking me to do later. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that was like for you. Who did reach out to me was conservative talk radio. Hey, you know, Jimmy and the monster want you on <laughs> Rhode Island <laughs> drive time radio to talk about woke mob. And I was like, I could not want that less. That's tough. You know, when I, as a liberal, experienced woke dumb. 
when it happened to me in the way that it was originally defined, which is that realization that, wait a minute, just to be white in America is to be wealthy in a way. It is a kind of wealth and access that's intrinsic to it because the absence of whiteness is a barrier. That realization, which honestly, after a lifetime of being a, uh, a very active progressive person, was a woke awakening. Yeah. And I'm grateful for it. It was a, a change in perspective, which you cannot help but love and embrace. The 1619 Project, I think, is phenomenal. It's fantastic. And I was just in, in Charleston and Savannah, and the effect that that kind of thinking has had just on the people that work in the national parks there, when they talk about Fort Sumter and the language that they use and their take on it is very informed by that social criticism of like, these words mattered. They're not slaves. They are enslaved people. And that is a meaningful distinction. Yeah. So to sit over on some toadstool and be like, the progressive left has lost the plot, you know, herb, herb, herb. It's a trap. Yeah. You just, it's a gyre. You cannot escape it because your audience is reinforcing it. And it, the tragedy, of course, is that here we are in middle age and there's so much to talk about. All of my friends that canceled me are, the, are fascinating people. And I miss them hmm. terribly. And more, I miss those conversations. And the ones that could right now be producing not just interesting, funny material, but helpful material. And this is partly a Generation X problem. We've abdicated to the 20-year-olds a lot of the responsibility, well, we could, we, sorry, global warming, sorry. I guess it's up to you to fix. Hmm. And then we go back to watching The Walking Dead or whatever. Generation X was never very good at saying like, we're going to shoulder this one. <laughs> Let us take the wheel. We were losers when we were 20 and we never grew out of that. But for me, like, I want to be part of the conversation. And that counter voice to like, well, progressism, yes. But, like, some of this stuff has been tried. It's not that we don't live in a Marxist utopia because we never thought of it before. And you have to be ready to challenge yourself to be both, like, sympathetic to Marxism and also somewhat dubious of it as a way of running a town. Right. But right now, you know, like I can't go on Twitter and say that. Or I could, but I'd be immediately in Jordan Peterson town. I wanted to hone in on feelings. What are your feelings at this point about what happened, but also what is happening in your life and in your career? Well, I've never, like I said at the beginning, like we've said throughout, I never had a plan before. And there's a part of me that feels like I've already made a turn toward something that I'll only know later. I'll look back and go, oh, right, it started when I made this simple choice. It might be coming on your show, right? It might be getting to know you too. Something has already happened. But I also know that from inside, that also often feels like the scariest time. Mm. 
during the period that I was transitioning from music to podcasting as a career, I was under a lot of financial stress. I wasn't making money from music, and I wasn't making money from podcasting. And it didn't seem like podcasting even could be a career. I thought that I would be really motivated by this persecution, and I would start churning out all the work that I'd always meant to. You're now going to make that magnum opus. I'm going to write that book. I'm going to this and that. And that just increased my anxiety and sadness. And I spent two years, you know, with the, all this stuff over my head. Mm. And honestly, for two years, I've carried a, a weight in my chest that I'd never had there before. That isn't anxiety. It's a wound. Mm. You know, this all injured me, and losing all those friends really injured me. And I've never, I mean, I, I was wounded as a child, and I worked all those years to not be wounded anymore. And now here I am, a middle-aged and wounded. Mm. And to lose that feeling that success was to join that national conversation. And to try and feel like, well, maybe success is just that you have a, I don't know, I can't even begin to understand how success is just to make it to the grocery and back every week and not lose it. And my daughter has opened my eyes to it because she watches me carefully and she will come up to me in situations and put her hand on my arm mm. as a way of saying, like, because I'll get flustered that someone, you know, someone will be rude to me in a social context and she'll see the hurt in me. And I'm sorry that she feels that part of her job is to manage my sadness because, of course, her mom is not sad. My mom and sister, everybody else in her life is pretty light. And she, at 12 years old now, has a sad father. Mm. And I'm not sad all the time. I hardly ever. But she sees it. And what she calls it is care. She comes and gives me care. Mm. And it's a short. You know, it's just a hand. It's an acknowledgement. Yeah. And just like a shh. Mm. Well, I don't want to be that way for the rest of my life. And, um, and that also feels kind of like these modern times. People are so much more articulate than we ever were. We grew up in a time when we could talk about psychology, and we had these little words like introvert and whatnot. But, you know, she's growing up in a cloud of feelings and thousand words to describe. Yeah, it's almost like you only had red, blue, and yellow, and she has all of the color spectrum. Yeah. Well, and it, it also comes with the thousand words to describe ways that you can be hurt, right? Mm. This is, you're know, in the world of microaggressions and I'm not denying microaggressions. It's, I've actually have never thought about it until this, until you brought it up this way, but that whole concept of like, if you don't have a word that separates blue and green, you grow up in a world where you see those as the same color, right? We know this from from visual science and psychology. Your perception of reality is shaped by the language that you have. And if you have more nuanced, complicated language to talk about ways of being hurt, then you are able to see hurt in lots of ways that you just can't otherwise. Yeah. 
by the same token, you're able to articulate and see more forms of care mm. and more forms of love. So I think maybe it's a double-edged sword there. It is, and I think a lot of our critique is that every one of those new nuanced ways of describing hurt ends up being a silo that gets filled with perceived hurt. If there's such a thing as microaggressions, you're going to find them where we never would have looked for them. And at a certain point, describing hurt has diminishing returns. My feeling is there's nothing wrong with having new words to describe new hurts because I feel like that gives the opportunity to also find new words for how to heal. The problem is the hurt comes first. Like, just because you have a hurt doesn't mean you know how to heal. Doesn't mean that you know what the word is to heal. And if no one's offering you the word for the healing, they're only offering you the word for the hurt, hmm. then you're stuck in the hurt. It's also just where you put your focus. Hmm. I mean, I think about a lot about this on the sort of stoic meditation level, that whatever's going on in your life, you can choose to look at the ways that it sucks, or you can choose to look at the ways that it's awesome. You have so much power over your own experience of reality by what you choose to put your attention on. Like all you really have is your attention. And if your attention is on all the things that are happening to me right now that are little pinpricks of annoyance, you're not gonna have a very pleasant day or a very pleasant life if that's how you build your life. And if instead you're looking at all the ways that you're lucky and remind, I mean, this is why gratitude exercises are so powerful. Just reminding yourself of all the things to be grateful for, that your life is awesome in all these ways. It totally changes your psychological reality. And that, more than anything, is what I find troubling about the uh, microaggression framework of life, which is looking for ways to be harmed. You'll find them. They're there. And they're not, they're not false. Those harms are real. But where's your attention and how much of your attention do you devote to looking at all the things that suck? What's the opposite of the microaggression, a micro... Micro care is what micro care, my micro encouragement. Yeah. yeah. One of the big debates during Bean Dad was that a lot of people said that I triggered them. Hmm. That this triggered their childhood abuse. It triggered their, their past hurts. And a lot of that came out as people realized that that's not what was happening. I was not actually injuring my daughter. But rather than go, oh, we made a mistake. Sorry that we overreacted. The conversation turned to, well, you may not have been doing that, but you triggered me. And the, the pushback from other people was, you being triggered is about you. No one is responsible for triggering you. But there was a lot of pushback against that. And, a, and part of my apology was, I'm sorry that I triggered so many people. It never occurred to me. Right. It was not my intention. Even if attention doesn't matter, just to let you know that it was not my intention. Right. But that conversation about if you're triggered, is it my fault? Am I culpable? You being triggered seems to point to what you need to work on in terms of where you're putting your attention, not something that you can just harbor as an injury. But it can also, you know, it's not a binary necessarily either. Right. Right. It can be the case that, yeah, you should, if that is really bothering you because some person you've never met on Twitter said something that came across your feed, good evidence that you should work on that. 
Also, if you were using some language that you didn't realize was really triggering to a whole group of people, maybe you should decide not to use that same kind of language. Right. It can be both in varying degrees. Um, and I think people get caught in the either or dichotomy there. Yeah, yeah, right. Hmm. And I think that it's true, certainly for people my age, where we feel like we've made a ton of language concessions over the course of our adult lives to say, at some point, am I not liberated from continuing to really, really nitpick my own expression? But like you say, the the rules of engagement are, no, you need to continue to hone and be vigilant and and evolve and evolve and look for ways to avoid hurting others yeah i feel and understand that am i allowed to say anything anxiety which it can build up with the more and more the language you're used to using is taken away but by the same token when i was in middle school i used the r word all the time to amongst my friends to talk about things that we disparaged and i don't do that anymore and I think that was a wise choice. If you just look at the 80s into the 90s, the queer was originally a word that was... That was a slur. Couldn't use it. It's super slur. And then it got reappropriated and now turned into a point of pride. But the F-A-G word went completely away. That's not used internally within queer culture or anywhere. And gay. I mean, we, as you say, we used gay as a slur. Yeah, And then there was that middle point where it was like, well, when we say something's gay, we don't mean homosexual, right? And now I don't even know where the word gay lives. So watching language, it, it, is, it hasn't just been a, a continuous line. In the course of my life, a lot of these words have had multiple forms and multiple meanings, sometimes expressing kinship. That's why the most, the best thing that you can be at this point is adaptable you adapt. My biggest concern is a situation like what you went through where you're specifically targeted as like an object to cancel because you represent something in the minds of the mob, not because you're a real person. And I think that's what is really scary about all of this is that the real people become lost in the object and what it represents that your face and your name happens to encapsulate in that moment. Well, you see it a lot in the, the conversation around canceling as an idea, mm. because there are a lot of people, smart people, well-intentioned, articulate authors and critics who will say there's no such thing as canceling. You see it a lot. Anybody that's been canceled deserved it for is one take on it's that. consequence culture and then me somebody that still has a job well i wasn't canceled because look i'm still a white dude in america and i still make a living from podcasting how was i canceled mm. and the fact that i lost all of my friends and half of my income and a reputation i'd spent decades building well that's immaterial because to cancel someone is to ruin them forever. And that was the goal of thousands of people in that three-day period, to see if they could ruin me forever. I mean, they tried to take away your daughter. Right. But there are still a lot of gatekeepers that will tell you that canceling isn't real and that cancel culture in itself is a conservative talking point 
that's there to undermine what is effectively like a cultural remedy that's natural and good. I would love for someone, maybe it has to be me, <laughs> to point out that like cancel culture sounds a lot like the three strikes law and mass incarceration. Um, well, and, you know, it is consequences, but the problem with consequence culture is that you don't have any of the very important protections that we put in place in things like the criminal legal process to have the ability to face your accuser, the ability to bring evidence in. The know, ability yeah. to have a sentence that is sane. Yeah, a or, sentence sorry. proportional to the offense. Like all of those things you expect from a, a fair justice system aren't present with consequence culture. If the consequence culture that. is what they called the three strikes law. They were like, we gave you three times. Now you're dead. <laughs> now you're in prison for the rest of your life. I don't care if you stole some, yeah. like, coffee. <laughs> like, it was the third time you're out. That's well, this is why it. there has to be, Sam Harris has said this a lot, that, like, there there has to be a path back. Yeah. It, there has to be, forgiveness has to mean something. Mm. And if you don't accept apologies, if if you build a culture that is unwilling to hear anything from the people that you judge to have done something wrong, then there's no incentive for anybody to apologize. There's no incentive for anybody to make amends if they know that the best path they have to get through the fire is to just double down and deny. And uh, you see that a lot. You see people doing the double down deny route because they've seen it happen to other people where they, they prostrate themselves and they get excommunicated anyway. Yeah, that's right. Uh, somebody, uh, some comedian put up a, what was it, 2022 bingo card? And one of the squares was Bean Dad Redemption Arc. <laughs> <laughs> and people I know that I respect and used to love, even, a couple of them retweeted this, like, lol. And it was amidst a dozen other little cultural moments. But what it suggested was, we're already laughing hmm. at the prospect of Bean Dad being allowed back in. It is also a kind of ludicrous and seedy part of this whole joke. It wasn't even the comedian that wrote it. It was the friends that retweeted it that I went, huh. An apology wasn't enough. But also, even having made an apology, there's no penance you can pay mm. that will be sufficient to ever. And honestly, of all the accusations, it's the one of assault mm. that haunts. Because when those people reevaluate their response and go, oh, you know, my friend obviously was not a child abuser, not a, a racist either. It was all a huge mistake, but he was accused of assault. And even though we know that that also probably was just as not true, there's no way to prove it. There's no way to ever say for sure, uh, because the person that made the comment is never going to retract it, probably, because it costs them nothing, you know? I mean, even if they do, that doesn't, retractions never spread. They never get retweets the way that accusations do. And maybe that person, you know, grows up and one day at age 50 goes, huh, well, I kind of played a role in that. But maybe that's a point of pride. And I think in their current community, it is, right? Again, because of in a world where making a comment about somebody's dress is assault, there's no talk about a microaggression. What do you think you learned about the culture and about yourself from this whole ordeal? 
Well, as it was happening, and I think it's still true, I likened it to being hit, hit by a tornado. And the part that's my responsibility is I built my house in a tornado alley. My career was right in the center of a place where a person like me is at risk of being hit by a tornado. An outspoken, middle-aged guy who's embraced a lot of the changes, but also feels confident staying his ground. And doing edgy satire. Edgy satire, but also I have not learned in the sense that I'm not making myself bulletproof. I will always go out into the world and go, a uh, point of order. And that may continue to put me at risk. But you don't build your house in Tornado Alley anymore. Well, to rebuild it in Tornado Alley would be really silly. The Tornado Alley thing is that I don't really blame anybody. It was a natural disaster. And I set myself up for it. But it could have happened to anybody that day. And the next day, there's a different person it happened to. Right. You can't curse God. It's nobody's fault. And so watching my friends and understanding, like, they didn't really have a choice. Hmm. It's a tragedy. And I think they probably feel it as a tragedy. But we're not friends anymore. Yeah. What's good about me is I think in the gratitude spectrum, more than ever before, I'm able to sit in moments where I get torqued and go, things are good. My daughter is healthy and happy. I live in a nice world. I'm loved. And these are things that it's taken me years to learn. And that, if anything, being dead accelerated that learning. Mm -hmm. Because I suffered from a lot of self-hatred and unreasonable expectations for myself. And I didn't know what love was or what happiness was. I'm not a Pictetus yet, but I'm starting to... Just say, oh, today is fine. And even if I just repot these ferns and make dinner, it will have been a good day. Yeah, that is enough. It, it is. It's hard for me. It's weirdly hard to feel like, well, that, you know, I did my little bit. And I think if this accelerates that evolution, if I'm able to learn, if nothing else, gratitude, then it will all have been worth it. I can't think of a better thing to have learned in the course of a life. Well, thank you for sharing all of this with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can find more information about John and his latest projects at johnroderick.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you want to see all the cans of beans we've been cracking open, head over to knoxrobinson.com. And please, leave us a five-star review. Tell your friends. And if you haven't been listening since the beginning, go back and check out our back catalog. Almost every episode is evergreen. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us, with theme music by Josh Udo Karp. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts, Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy, and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories.
What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.